to turn to Mark chapter 14. We're going to be reading verses 12 to 25. That's on page 850 of the church Bibles. Mark chapter 14 from verse 12. And while you're arriving there, why don't I lead us in prayer for God's help? Dear God, we are so grateful that in the Lord Jesus, Through his death and resurrection, we are indeed forgiven all our sins. What comfort and hope we have. Please help us as we turn to Mark's gospel and the events leading up to Jesus' death. Help us as we witness to understand better what Jesus went through, and so to love him more and want to obey him and live for him him who gave everything for us. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Mark 14 from verse 12. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city And a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Amen. One of the the most memorable dinners I went to with Hillary was at a place called Dan Lenoir. I think that's the the French for in the dark. Maybe one of you polyglots can correct me um, afterwards. Uh, The restaurant's whole shtick is that you dine completely in the dark. I kid you not, we couldn't even see our hands in front of our faces. Uh, The waiters are all blind and they guide you through the place, through the courses. And the idea is that one of your senses is taken away so to heighten the culinary experience. It was memorable. It was lots of fun. I learned that my portion control at home is shocking. Um, 
but also it was just such a, a fun experience with Hillary as well as some dear friends of ours and of our church, Miles and Adeline. As memorable as that night was, what we just read is arguably the most remembered meal of all time. The, the famous painting of The Last Supper by da Vinci is one of the most admired and studied and reproduced artworks the world has ever known, valued at around about half a billion pounds, some would say, but it's impossible to, to price one of the most iconic works of art in the world. The verses we read contain amazing amounts of meaning. The passage is loaded with rich imagery pointing backwards to another meal that God commanded his people to remember and looking forward to God's greater and, and final rescue. The reason this is also a meal to remember is because these verses show Jesus freely and sovereignly going to his death, as well as interpreting the meaning of his death for us. There are two scenes in our section, both revealing big truths about the identity and the mission of Jesus. You'll have noticed that there's the preparations for the Passover and then the Passover meal itself. And in order to consider both scenes and what they have to teach us about Jesus and what our response to him ought to be, we're going to consider the Passover and the background to the Passover. That introductory sentence, a meal to remember, is both a reference, yes, to the Last Supper but and to the Passover meal that God instructed his people to eat after their rescue from slavery in Egypt. I'm persuaded that the more we understand the background to the Passover meal, and so the meal that's going on here, the more we will feel the weight of what's going on. The more familiar we are with Passover itself, the more we will appreciate the, the drama of this passage. And so let's do that, first of all. Let's look at the, the background to the Passover. From, from verse 1 to verse 16 of chapter 14, the Feast of Unleavened Bread is mentioned twice. Passover is mentioned five times. Mark is giving us these clues because he doesn't want us to miss that this is going on at this precise point in the Jewish calendar. The, the Feast of Unleavened Bread was the, the biggest feast and, and one of the most important dates in the Jewish calendar. We said last week that Passover in Jesus' day was a time of national pride and spiritual renewal. Like if you could add together Christmas and Thanksgiving and Independence Day and Remembrance Day all into one, but why was Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread such a big deal? Well, for the ancient Jews, and still for Jews today, Passover was an annual meal that commemorated a defining moment in the history of Israel. More than a millennium before the time of Jesus, the Israelites had been enslaved to Egypt's Pharaoh, trapped in miserable bondage for over 400 years. The feast celebrated the events of the Exodus, 
and the Passover celebration on the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread recalls the, the decisive event that brought about the rescue of God's people. If you read Exodus in chapter 6, God promises his people deliverance. And for the next six chapters, we read that God sent a number of plagues on Egypt to persuade Pharaoh to let God's people go. However, each time, Pharaoh said no. That was until the, the plague that changed Pharaoh's mind. The tenth and final plague was the angel of death who passed through Egypt, striking down every firstborn of both people and animals, bringing judgment on the whole nation. God instructed his people to sacrifice a lamb and to mark the door frames of their homes with the lamb's blood so that the angel of death would pass over them and their households. Hence, the Passover. And therefore, ever since, central to the celebration of the Passover on day one of the Feast of Unleavened Bread was the ritual sacrifice of an unblemished lamb. That happened during the day, and then in the evening, in people's homes, at family gatherings, people would eat the lamb, the, the Passover lamb. Uh, the Passover day looked back at the rescue of God's people, but also looked forward to the day when God would bring that final rescue through his Messiah. What about unleavened bread, though? Uh, it's bread made without yeast, no raising agent. It's a flat bread. When God's people were rescued from Egypt, they rightly left in such a hurry that they didn't have time for dough to prove and rise. God commanded them to make bread without it and leave the land where they'd been slaves for 400 years. And when God rescued his people, he made a covenant with them. A covenant is like a binding, unbreakable promise from God to his people that he would be with them, provide for them, and bring them home to a promised land. The covenant had obligations also for God's people. They had to be faithful and loyal and committed to God. And if they did, God would bless them. And the sign of that covenant, that the physical ratifier, was the blood of the sacrifice. When we get to Exodus 24, verse 8, we read, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. And the point being made is that when God rescued his people from Egypt, he didn't just rescue them from slavery and from Egypt. He rescued them for a relationship with him into an unbreakable covenant. And so are we starting to see how powerful a story this is at the heart of Jewish identity and culture and nationalism and pride? 
It's such a powerful story, in fact, that African-American slaves adopted it as a, a metaphor for their struggle and an expression of hope of their own liberation. It led to songs being written. And even Harriet Tubman, famously a liberator of black slaves, she was known as Moses herself. I hope we're starting to see why it is a bit like Independence Day and Christmas and Remembrance Day all put together. I hope we're starting to see why Jerusalem during the feast was a bit like St. Andrew's during the open. So let's turn back to the, to the narrative then and to the Passover preparations of verses 12 to, to 16. And what we see is Jesus completely in control. Without the, the, the Passover context of verse, uh, verses 12 to 16, to me, as I read it, seemed slightly out of place, given where we are in Mark's gospel. This is the passion narrative. We've just read in the previous section that Judas is conspiring with the religious leaders in order to betray Jesus and hand him over to be killed. And then Mark inserts the really detailed account of how they secured their dinner reservations. Why? Well, the, the rejection theme will continue throughout chapter 14, but, but first, Mark wants us to know beyond a shadow of doubt that Jesus is in control over all the plots and plans against him. Did you notice the, the perfectly precise preparations for the Passover meal? Uh, this passage is actually incredibly similar to the story of Jesus' triumphal entry in, in Mark uh, chapter 11. Uh, you'll just scan these verses with me. In Mark 14, uh, in verse 13, he sent two of his disciples. Exactly the same happened in Mark 11. And he said to them, go into the city. In uh, Mark 11, he says, and he said to them, go into the village. In Mark 14, verse 14, say that the teacher. In Mark 11, say that the Lord. Verse 16, and went and found them just as he had told them. And same in Mark 11, went out just as Jesus said. Uh, as I read it, it kind of sounds like an old spy novel and the directions you might give a fellow spy to, to find the rendezvous point. Meet this man here. Tell him this thing. He'll give you the code word, and he'll take you to where you have to be. But, but the effects of both stories in the narrative is to show that Jesus is completely in control. Just as in Mark 11, Jesus was sovereignly authoritative, so he is here. Unlike in Mark 11, where the atmosphere was charged with excitement and joy, in Mark 14, the, the backdrop is betrayal and denial and abandonment and murder plots. And yet, Jesus never responds with, with fear or desperation. He doesn't lash out or anxiously try to maneuver or manipulate the situation. He doesn't hide in fear or retreat from the dangerous plots around him. Rather, 
He walks through these events with a a sovereign freedom and a striking note of authority. It's his cult. It's his temple. And here it's his guest room. No one outsmarts Jesus or overpowers him or outmaneuvers him. Jesus is not a helpless victim. He will lay down his life of his own accord. One commentator says that it's almost as if Mark is desperate to tell us readers, don't you dare draw the conclusion that Jesus is out of his depth here. He is completely in control. And Jesus is still completely in control over all that happens on earth today. We read later on in the New Testament in Colossians chapter 1 that Jesus, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And so here I might be, small and limited and not in control. How, How will I make it? Our passage proclaims the the rock-solid truth that God rules and reigns over this world in meticulous detail. He is not just generally in control over some things or many things or most things, but completely in control of all things, including our lives. And that's the first thing Mark wants to remind us of this evening, that the king, on his way to the cross, is completely in control. Mark also wants to tell us that Jesus, the one who is completely and lovingly in control, is in control because he has a job to do. He's on a mission, a rescue mission, which leads us to to our second point, the the Passover meal itself and the king's greater rescue mission. The the next section opens with the the meal itself in verse 18. As they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. Again, betrayal doesn't take Jesus by surprise. He predicts it. And he says that it was prophesied in verse 21. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But he also condemns the person who is to carry out the betrayal. Same again, verse 21. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. This betrayal is a great evil and God will render judgment, but it is all part of God's all-wise and predestined plan. We might be tempted to panic as we come to a verse like this. How can God be sovereign, but humans are still responsible for what we do? It's not that God in his sovereignty coerced Judas to carry out the evil act of betraying Jesus. Rather, 
The, the sovereign God worked his will in and through the choices of his creatures. Judas did exactly what Judas wanted to do, but God brought good out of evil, redemption out of treachery. By saying, the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, in verse 21, Jesus was letting his shocked and sorrowful disciples know that the events were playing out exactly as the Father had ordained them from the beginning of the world. Jesus goes on, and and we read in, in verse 22 that as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. The Passover meal included four points at which the the presider or the host, holding a, a glass of wine, got up and explained the feast's meaning. The four cups represented the four promises made by God in Exodus chapter 6. The promises were, were rescue from Egypt, freedom from slavery, redemption by God's power, and renewed relationship with God. And the third cup is when Jesus, the host, interrupts proceedings and astonishingly departs from the script. Imagine the astonishment of the disciples when Jesus blessing the elements and explaining their symbolism. Imagine how they must have felt when Jesus departs from 1,400 years of tradition, departs from the script that has been reenacted by generation after generation. And instead, he explains the, the divine design for his death in picture form. He puts death into the symbols offered by the meal, the broken bread representing his body, and the wine that is poured out representing the, the shedding of his blood. In detail, he shows them the bread and says, this is my body. What Jesus does is shocking, but what he means is just as shocking. He's saying, this is the bread of my suffering because I'm going to lead the ultimate exodus and bring you the ultimate deliverance from bondage. And the climax of the whole meal arguably comes with Jesus' words indicating that his work is really a, a covenant, a bond in blood that will unite God and his people. And the blood here is so significant. Throughout the Old Testament sacrificial system, the life of a creature was symbolized by its blood. And so therefore, Jesus' blood is a reference to his very life. Jesus' life was the payment that would establish a new covenantal arrangement between God and his people. 
that the phrase, the blood of the covenant, cannot be understood without the reference to the old covenant. And with these simple gestures and sayings, Jesus is telling them that all the earlier deliverances and the earlier sacrifices and all the lambs at Passovers, they were all pointing to himself. And just as the first Passover was observed the night before God redeemed the Israelites from slavery through the blood of lambs, this Passover meal was eaten the night before God redeemed the world from sin and death through the blood of Jesus. Verse 25, um, Jesus emphasizes that the once and for all nature of his death, we've been thinking about that all evening, uh, by his assertion that he will not drink again uh, until the, the final kingdom. And therefore, in inviting his disciples to eat and drink, Jesus is inviting them to, to appropriate for themselves his death. He gives himself for them and to them and invites them to share in the benefits of his death. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper, it's a meal for sinners, not achievers. The use of the word all is somewhat daunting throughout the whole section of chapter 14. Verse 23, they all drank of the cup, even though they all swore that they would not fall away. They all fall away in verse 27. We'll see that next week. And eventually, they all flee and abandon Jesus in verse 50. This is obviously not a meal, only for those who, who merit it. The, the, the prerequisite is need. People who, who eat and drink have to, to recognize their need for food and drink. And taking this meal means recognizing your need for Jesus' body and blood to save you. On the cross, Jesus completed the work that would bring the people of God to God forever. To all the people like Peter who say, I've got this. And Jesus says, no, look again. Don't trust in what you do. Trust in what I do. I have you. I paid for you. I will never let you go. And if you're not trusting in Jesus, Jesus says to you, take it. Receive the benefits of my death as you enjoy a personal relationship with me. Enjoy all the benefits of my perfect, substitutionary, sacrificial suffering for you. Jesus invites you to, he commands you to repent and believe in him. Repent from your sin, your self-reliance, your rejection of his sovereign rule in your life, and to believe in his death as the means to save you. And if we are Christians here this evening, we're being invited to, to recognize the significance 
of Jesus' sacrificial death to rescue us from a fate far worse than slavery in Egypt. When John the Baptist saw Jesus for the first time, he said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The prophet Isaiah wrote about the Messiah. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. He poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. When Jesus says, this is my body, this is my blood, he's saying, I'm the one Isaiah and John spoke about. I am the Lamb of God to which all other lambs pointed to, the Lamb that takes away the sin of the world. And on the cross, Jesus got what we deserved, the sin, the, the guilt and brokenness of the world fell upon him. He loved us so much. He took divine justice on himself so that we could be passed over forever. How can I not thank God for Jesus' resoluteness, his unwavering commitment to his mission to save me? He knew what was coming, but he loved me, so he kept going. Jesus signs off in, in verse 25. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Uh, Jesus' words look forward to our, our glorious destiny. His death and resurrection enable Christians the enjoyment of the lavish and rich welcome into the kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus, as 2 Peter puts it. And just as we wrap everything together, imagine you were in Egypt just after the first Passover. If you stopped one of the Israelites on their way out, and you ask them, who, who are you and what's going on here? They would say, I was a slave under a sentence of death, but I, I took shelter under the blood of the lamb and escaped the bondage. And now God lives in our midst and we're following him to the promised land. That is exactly what Christians say today. If you're trusting in Jesus is sacrificed, the, the greatest longings of our hearts will be satisfied on the day you sit down for that eternal feast in the promised kingdom of God. And it's on that hope that let's finish by praying. Dear God and Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the Lord Jesus. We thank you that he was completely in control in the face 
of the sorrowful and horrible and painful events that were coming his way. We thank you that he was resolute because he had a mission, a mission to die for many. Father, we thank you so much that the Lord Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It's with great thanks that we come to you this evening, grateful for Christ's sacrifice on the cross. And in his name we pray. Amen.